It's upfront and it's candid. This is Unrestricted. What's up, everyone? Welcome to a special edition of Unrestricted Podcast. Uh, today, we're going to do an AMA Ask Me Anything. Uh, earlier in the week, I uh, tweeted out and I also put out on Instagram the fact that I'll be, I was going to be doing this and asking for your guys' help. Uh, you guys are going to help me propel this podcast through the entirety with your questions. So I was asking you guys, and thank you for responding on both Twitter and Instagram, um, any questions that you have for me that uh, I'm going to answer right here. Now, I will say that some of them I'm not going to get to. Some of them were private and obviously personal questions that I know were probably jokes, but uh, I'm not going to answer. You know, one guy asked how many times that my wife and I have sex per week. I mean, come on. I mean, I'm hoping that's a joke. Um, Obviously, you're not going to get a real answer as I answer this on the podcast. Uh, So it's going to be no guests this week. It's just going to be my dumb voice uh, for as long as it takes to get through some of these questions. I had a lot of questions. And again, I appreciate all of the feedback and um, and the connectivity with all the fans. Um, So I had to kind of go through the questions and feel like, all right, well, that's something I feel comfortable answering. And, and there's also, I, I sort of looked at the, the frequency of questions. So if I, if I had a similar question, I realized, okay, well, maybe more people are thinking about that question than others. And so I, I kind of put that towards the priority of the list of things to answer. So I have right now seven questions that I'm going to get to, and they're going to range mostly starting with football And then the last few are going to be just more about life questions. So this is it. AMA question number one. This was on Twitter at uh, Wisco Fresh. I hope you guys don't mind that when I can and where I feel like it's applicable and it's appropriate, I will put the, the handle or the name that is associated with each account that asked the question. So this one is from Wisco Fresh. And he asked, what is the toughest moment as a Viking. Obviously, I had to think about that because there were a lot of tough moments. You know, I would say the toughest moment for me outside of 2010. Okay, let's take it a step back. 2009, Brett Favre first year, obviously losing in the championship game against the Saints was horrible. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible experience to feel like you've got the the Super Bowl berth wrapped up. All we had to do was march a couple more yards, and we knew Ryan Longwell was going to kick the game-winning field goal. We just knew it. We had that confidence on the sidelines uh, to have that come crashing down in overtime and have to kind of go through all the things that happened in the locker room with just the, the disappointment, the dejection. Uh, clearly there were tears. Um and the numbness, I mean, I think that was the other thing was just I didn't realize how numb I was going to feel after that game. Uh, partially it's probably because I think all of the the caffeine that I had taken for that game was starting to wear off. The, the tortol injections that a lot of us get before the game to sort of, to sort of numb the pain a little bit, uh, that was probably wearing off. Uh, and then obviously just the d- disappointment of the, of the game itself and what was at stake was lost. And, and it's, a, it's a funny thing, man. 
You go a thousand miles an hour during the course of the season, and it stops really in an instant. I mean, the plane ride home, getting home, sitting on my couch. Uh, I think it was probably three or four in the morning when I got home, and my wife is asleep already. And I sat there in the in the darkness and the silence of my living room, just kind of sort of staring at the TV. And you have that that numbness that that. Even just the travel weariness, you know, your your ears are just sort of humming and ringing just from the flight and from all the stuff and all the excitement. And, and it was three plus hours of the Superdome going crazy, like the loudest stadium I've ever been a part of. And I think you just have that sort of just that buzz and that energy still in your in your system. And you're trying to come down from that. God, it was such a surreal thing. Very surreal to just know that the season was over and um we were going in the next day to have our exit meetings, and that was it. And the next time, the next time you 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 walked into Winter Park was for that new season, and um, and that was going to be in in March, late March. So um, that was tough. Uh, that was a that was a long way to get to the point where I'm actually going to answer this question. The toughest part for me as a Viking was knowing that 2010 was going to be my last season. I'd felt the writing on the wall. I knew that uh, they wanted to upgrade at my position. Uh, I think they knew that my body was starting to break down. I was in the training room a lot more than I would like to have been in the training room, dealing with uh, a knee injury that started with the Chicago Bears. Years before that, I slammed my knee on the turf at uh, at the Metrodome, uh, tore my PCL, uh, missed, missed the Buffalo Bills game, I believe, the next week. And then that was it. Um, played through it, uh, got through it, and and because of that, my knee sort of started to to deteriorate to the point where uh, it was getting to be bone on bone, and I was having some some cartilage issues of just floating around in my knee, and so a lot of pain in my knee my last year, and uh, I really questioned whether or not I could play a hundred percent or even close to a hundred percent. You know, throw in some other injuries that just sort of happened and some fluky things. Uh, like I tweaked my low back in a game, you know, missed the second half of a game because I was having back spasms. So I think, I think you know, when when the guy starts getting back spasms uh, because of a non-contact injury, uh, they start looking at you like this motherfucker's getting old. Um, so I I knew 2010 was going to be my last season, and I think that was the hardest thing is is the realization that when the season started to wind down, and I got into the month of December. And and 2010 was just a crazy year anyway because that was the Metrodome collapse. Obviously, we weren't having a very good year with Favre in a second year. Um, Childress gets fired. I mean, we could all internally write a book about 2010 for all the things that we had to deal with. Um, and then throw on the, the fact that I knew it was going to be my last hurrah with my buddies that I'd been playing with for five years. That was the hardest moments of my playing career that – not only was did I know that my Vikings season and career was coming to an end, I also knew in the back of my head I didn't have much time left to play football at all. And I really started to question whether I wanted to play anymore. And there was that, that part of me that had set a goal. I wanted to get to 10 years. I was at year nine. So I knew I was going to push through whatever it was for one more season, but Man, I tell you what, when you're not mentally and emotionally into something, doing that thing, whatever it is, can be really challenging, especially when it's going through the physical and mental toll of, of playing a season. So um, 
that last year, 2010, was the hardest year, the hardest moments of my Viking career. I remember our last game of the season and my last game as a Viking was against the Detroit Lions, how it seems to always happen like that with the schedule. And I sat in my locker at the end of the game holding back tears, knowing that every guy to my right and left would no longer exist in my life. And so that was really hard. You know, it was really hard to look around and, and, and talk to my coach and talk to my coach the next day. And as we're doing our exit meetings, you know, I, was, I knew I was doing it for the final time. And I don't think that anybody else really knew that. I, I mean, everybody's so, I wouldn't say selfish, but you're, you're kind of just looking at your own lot in life. And so I don't think a lot of guys really knew that I wasn't going to be on the team next year. I don't think a lot of guys even knew that my contract was up. And and when I had my exit meeting with with Rick Spielman, uh, as we normally do at the end of the season, I knew when he when I, when I walked out of that room and the tone of his voice was, "If there's anything I can do in the future, you let me know." And it was a it was a great little it was a nice thing that he said, but you don't say that to somebody in which you think they're going to be back on the team. And and so that for me was it. I knew. If I had any hope that they're going to send me a small contract, a veteran minimum contract, slightly above veteran minimum contract, that any any hope of that was was shut. It was over. He he did not want to bring me back. He was not even thinking about bringing me back. And um, so those final days there were 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 really hard. Um, I hope that answered your question, uh, Wisco Fresh. Okay, number two. Uh, multiple multiple people asked me this question. What was my aha moment in the NFL? And this one is something that I've actually shared with on either the the Power Trip morning show on KFAN or with Paul Allen on KFAN. My rookie year, I was drafted 71st overall in the third round of the San Diego Chargers. And that whole time from getting drafted to OTAs to mini camp to training camp and really into my first seven or eight games – I never really looked at myself as an NFL player. I really just was was fighting to belong, you know, from the time I got in, my lo- in the locker room to, to getting my, my helmet and, and looking at that Chargers bolt and, and knowing, obviously, I knew I was in the NFL. I mean, I knew all the, all the players and, and I knew the magnitude of being drafted in the NFL, but I never truly took a step back. And, and thought about where I was or what I was doing um, and really analyzed it. And the weight of everything never really hit me. And then we kind of cut to I was having a good rookie season um, and everything was, was seemingly great. You know, I was starting with the starting defense from really the first couple practices in training camp that elevated me from second team to first team. And, and I never really looked back from that point on. So I, I was a starter, and I think that was also part of it. I never had a chance to really take a deep breath because I was just trying to keep up with the starters and trying to you know, keep Rodney Harrison happy, uh, keep Junior Seau happy, Donnie Edwards happy, Marcellus Wiley happy, like trying to make it seem like I belonged with those guys in the field. And it wasn't until we were playing the Oakland Raiders in the middle of the season and one of the iconic players to ever play the game, and, and really for our household being 49ers fans and Dallas Cowboy fans, Jerry Rice was such a huge figure. And, you know, he was obviously a household name in many households, but he was playing for the Oakland Raiders at the time. And it wasn't even until I got on the field that I realized I was playing against Jerry Rice. You know, so the whole week of practice, as we're, 
We've got his jersey identified in on the scout team. We're talking about him. I look at my three-ring binder, and I see his scouting report. And, and I know that Jerry Rice is on the team, but I never really put it together. It was still just like a name. And then we're, we get out in the game on that Sunday, and I line up. We're in a zone defense, and this defense had me bump out in coverage and cover out in space. And if we were, if we were giving multiple receivers to that side, I adjust out, and Jerry Rice is the number two receiver to that side. And so I get in my position. I, I'm, I'm just sort of getting lined up, and I look up, and within you know th- two or three yards away from me, and I look through the face mask, and it's Jerry Rice. And at that moment, that was my aha moment. That was my that was the moment where I literally said to myself, "Holy shit, that's Jerry Rice." And and I completely blanked on what play I was supposed to run, what they ran, what I, what my responsibility was. Um, you can visibly see me when we watch film the next day, sort of just stay flat footed and not really move because I was sort of shell shocked. I was in awe that. I'm wearing an NFL uniform across the line of scrimmage from me is one of the greatest players of all time in which I remember as a kid watching him in Super Bowls, um, watching his, his hands go up in the air, celebrating touchdowns being thrown from Joe Montana. How in the fuck am I on this field with this guy? That, that like, that's still, when I think about it, I just, man, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a hard hit from a player. It wasn't getting yelled at by by Rodney Harrison and, and minicamp and to where he had me shaking in my boots about about my past responsibility and, and doing my job. It wasn't even that. It was looking up, being on the same field as Jerry Rice um, and knowing that in that moment that I was an NFL player and um, and really sort of the blinders kind of went off, came off of my my vision and my eyes. And I was kind of opened up to this world that like, wow, I'm I'm really here. Well, I hate to interrupt such a great conversation, but I have to thank my sponsors. I couldn't do this without my sponsors, so I want to thank Douglas & Todd Small Batch Bourbon. Everything about Douglas & Todd is all Minnesota. The wheat, the corn is all grown within 30 miles of the distillery up in Osakis. It is distilled there. It's bottled in Princeton, Minnesota, and distributed around the country. It is bourbon season, people. The weather's getting cold, and I can't think of a better thing on a cool night. Nice little glass of bourbon. So Douglas and Todd's small batch bourbon, please enjoy responsibly. 21 plus bourbon whiskey. It is 46.5% alcohol by volume. It is produced and bottled by Ed Phillips and Sons Company in Princeton, Minnesota. Thank you. Also, pick and shovelware. Head over to pickandshovelware.com. Check out all their awesome shirts and hats and hoodies. Again, it's getting a little cooler. I love a good hoodie, and they make awesome hoodies and apparel that are specific to Minnesota. They have uh, all these fun graphic designs of your favorite sports teams, favorite sports moments as well. So very sports-centric, Minnesota sports-centric apparel company. You can get 20% off your first order at Pick and Shovel Wear if you just use the promo code LIBER. That's L-E-B-E-R, 20% off your first order. And also to Wexford Harbor Insurance. They're an independent insurance agent representing over over 40 different companies. The man, the guy that runs Wexford Harbor, Pat Kelly, look him up. He and his staff are sure to take care of you. They're going to find the best value for you, for your family, for your home, for all of your auto needs. 
anything that you're looking for, umbrella insurance, or if you're in the commercial space looking for a commercial insurance as well, over 40 different companies that he independently checks for you. That's Wexford-Harbor. That's H-A-R-B-O-U-R.com slash unrestricted to find them. Wexford-Harbor.com backslash unrestricted or email them at info at Wexford-Harbor.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Okay, number three. Somebody asked, Dawson on Twitter asked, what is the highest tab we've ever had going out as teammates? And I had to think about that one for a hot minute because when I was a rookie, and most rookies, you get sort of indoctrinated. And if you're, if you're a higher-end draft pick, you, you have to basically fit the bill whenever your position group goes out. So I paid for multiple lunches with our linebacker core and all this other stuff. Um, you know, it was a couple hundred bucks here and there. So it was never a, a big deal. But what what rookies have to do that are first-round draft picks is take out all the veterans. Now, the veteran status can kind of alters from different teams. Some teams are – you get three years in the league, you're a veteran. You get four years in the league, you're a veteran. And so whatever that cutoff point is, it's kind of determined by each team. Well, so for my year, Quentin Jammer had to take some guys out because he was a first-round uh, cornerback taken out of Texas, and he had to take some guys out. I have no idea what his bill was. A couple years later, though, uh, Sean Merriman, who was drafted to basically take my spot, um, he was drafted in the first round. And what they allowed at that point in time was, all right, Sean, you can split the dinner bill with uh, with the couple of the draft picks behind you. You know, you'll you'll take like sixty percent of the bill, and the other guys will split the the rest of the forty, and. Um, and I was considered a veteran at my my third year in the league at that point in time. So I get to I got to go out for the first time ever on the rookie dinner. So we all go out and let's say there's you know 20, 25 of us that are at this dinner, along with those selected rookies, and we go to Donovan Steakhouse in San Diego. And Donovan Steakhouse, if you guys have ever flown out there and you look in the back of those those flight magazines, they always have like the best chop house, best steakhouse. Well, Donovan's is usually on that top 10 list. And and so that was a, an iconic spot for people to go out and to have this nice, fancy, fancy dinner. So we shut the place down. Obviously, the, somebody called ahead and said, hey, we're going to do a rookie dinner at Donovan's. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's go out and just blow the doors off. So we get there and it's just no holds barred. I mean, anything on the menu, think about this, anything on the menu you could order and don't have to pay for. And so guys were just absolutely manipulating the system. I mean, there was there was no there was no like class to it. It wasn't like, oh well, I'm gonna have this small side salad. I'm gonna have the petite fillet and maybe a couple cocktails. No, shit, no. There was none of that. It was let's make these guys pay and let's make them hurt. Um, so guys were ordering. I mean, they're ordering steak for appetizer. They didn't care. They're ordering steak for appetizer. They're ordering crab legs, lobster tails, bottles of champagne, bottles of high-end liquor. I mean, whatever it is, Louis the Thirteenth, whatever the the high-end stuff that they're all drinking, Hennessy, Kvass. I don't even know what it was. I mean, shots, shots that would be like a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars a shot. They're taking multiple things of those. Guys were guys were ordering food to go. Guys were ordering steak dinners for their wives. Um, it was fucking bananas. It was nuts. And this was just the first part of the night. This was just to start our night before everybody went out and went out and did their separate thing at the clubs and stuff that night. So when we got done with that, 
obviously you were full and guys were just acting like total clowns. Um, I believe Sean Merriman's bill himself was close to $30,000. So it's either $30,000 that he had to pay himself or $30,000 was the total tab. But I, I want to th- – yeah, $30,000 is the number that sticks in my mind. Now, whether that was the total bill or not, I don't know. Because honestly, 30000 seems really low. Given the fact that there are 25 guys there or something, and easily a guy could have spent $1,000 by himself just with all the stupid food and drinks that they were getting. I mean, bot- guys were carrying bottles, uh, unopened bottles of champagne and, and high-end wine just out the door. It was so stupid. Um, so Sean and the other rookies had to pay for that. Uh, my apologies. I promise you I did not go crazy like that, but I know other guys did. Okay, let's go on to number four. Um, this guy, uh, Ryan on Twitter, asked, um, how does the NFL work? And thankfully, he elaborated on how the NFL works. Um, the daily schedule, the contracts, the pay, all that stuff. Um, I get this question a lot. The NFL is um, obviously a business, and it's a, it's a true 9-to-5 job, and I think a lot of people think that oh, you just kind of show up and you, and you play the games on Sundays. Um, it's, there's, there's a lot, I'm not going to go into how the contracts work and, and, and all that stuff. Cause it gets really multi-layered be, like based on where you were drafted and what your, your status is, but I, I will go in the daily, the daily schedule. And I will say one thing about the pay. Most teams pay you only for the 17 week schedule, obviously 17 weeks. Cause you have the one built in by week, you get paid on a 17 game schedule and that's it. And you get paid bi-weekly. So you get paid twice a month, basically. Um, and you only get paid for those 17 weeks. And so that's why we tell a lot of our young guys, you have to budget for the whole year because yeah, it's going to feel great to get this fat check. It's going to be the biggest check you probably ever seen in your life when you're a rookie, um, on that one check, but that check and those checks are going to run out basically around middle of January if you don't make the playoffs. And so now you're not going to get paid again. Uh, until you make the football team the next year. And that's the, the, the other catch is you've got to make the football team the next year. And and so that is a very tricky budgetary thing is imagine only getting paid for basically four months of work and then they occupy and consume your time enough to where you don't really have time to get a part-time job. You can't work another job in the in the off-season to supplement your pay or just feel like you can get a paycheck, uh, you've got to make that work. And, um, boy, it's it's a pitfall for a lot of guys. Now, as far as the daily schedule goes, the daily schedule is pretty much generically the same throughout the whole season for every team. You play the game on Sunday, so we'll pick up on Monday. So Monday you will go in, and it depends on what your travel schedule is. If you're playing on the road, it depends on what time you fly in. But generically we're going to say um, everybody's got a home game, and – and so you play the game on Sunday. Monday rolls around. Most teams have you in at 9 o'clock in the morning for, for weights and conditioning. Now, this is just a very light weights and conditioning day. It's really to flush out all the lactic acid out of your system and, um, and get you to sort of uh, just flush, flush yourself out. A lot of stretching. Um, but you are, you are getting a good sweat in, and you are getting some, some conditioning work in, whether it's cross fields, 100-yard um, dash uh, type type uh, strider runs, but you're getting a sweat in. You're getting a little bit of a workout in at uh, between like 9 and 11. Around 11 o'clock, uh, you have a special teams meeting. Uh, well, you have a team meeting, and um, the whole team's there. They break down the game, 
pluses, minuses, the overview by the head coach. Then you kind of break out into special teams. And that's when we, if you're on a special teams unit, we're going to go through every play of every special teams and you're going to get graded. Um, I think that's the other thing that people find fascinating. We get graded every single day, not just on game day, but even in practice. You get graded every day. You're getting basically game day um, grade sheets are more elaborate. They're, there's more to them, but we get feedback from our coaches every single day on our performance. So think about that from your own standpoint at work. Think about four o'clock every day. You're getting some sort of breakdown about how you did that day. Um, it's it's honestly the best thing about playing football is to know exactly where you're at at all times. So special teams meeting happens there. You get graded out, and then and then you break out into position meetings or offense defense and some teams depend on the game you you're going to break down all the film as a defense together and all the film as an offense together um, and you do it as a whole big unit or you break out into smaller groups and so for me the linebacker groups would just get together so it'd be us six or seven guys with our coach and we go we'd go through our grading sheet pluses and minuses in every play and you get praised or yelled at based on on how you did and you kind of go through that um and so that that takes up the early parts of the afternoon. So your your time commitment is around nine o'clock to about two o'clock ish on Monday, and then then after that it's get some get some training room work if you need it. You do all your ice tub, cold tub, all the modality stuff to get your body right. Um, Tuesdays is a mandatory day off around the league. Those days are usually set aside for all the community work. Um, and also your body work, going back into the training room, you're going you're gonna to get extra training room work, um, ice, stem, massage, Pilates, yoga, whatever you need to do to get your body right for that week, uh, to flesh everything out from Sunday. You're also going out in the community. I know a lot of guys will spend Tuesday afternoons or Tuesday mornings doing some sort of community service work. Um, so you're still on your feet. You're still being active. You're still, your mind is still, is still going. And then, you start, and then you start as you get older, and most guys should do this. Going in and breaking down film for the opponent on on Tuesday night. So then Wednesday, Thursday are work days. You're in there at around 6.30 for weights. Uh, you'll walk out of there around 5 o'clock, get extra film work in. Maybe you're home by 6 or 6.30. Uh, Friday is an, an abbreviated day. Again, you're in there for team meeting probably around 8 o'clock. You're out at about 2 o'clock. Saturday, another, another truncated day, even more so. It's 8 o'clock meeting out after walkthrough at about 12, 12.30, 1 o'clock after lunch. Um, and then for us, we were in the hotel that night around 7 o'clock for meetings. And you get up the next morning on Sunday, and you have to be there two hours before kickoff. And a lot of us got there about three hours before kickoff. So you're up, you're at them, you're at the stadium at about 9 o'clock in the morning to get ready for a noon game. And then you start the cycle all over again um, on the next on the following Monday. So that ladies and gentlemen, is the daily schedule in the NFL for 16 weeks. Okay, number five. Um, <laughs> number five, this is actually a funny one, and I and I thought this would be a good time to interject. Um, something a little funny that happened in our locker room. So Visante Shanko, tight end, Minnesota Vikings, had a – this is the background story. He had a changing room gaffe. I believe we were playing the Detroit Lions again. Um, we had, I believe, clinched the division. And there are camera crews all over the place, special celebrations going on. Uh, Ziggy Wilf, our owner, is in the middle of the room giving a speech, saying thank you to you guys, all this other stuff. And Shanko's in the background 
just wearing a towel at this point in time. But before he put his towel on, the cameras were rolling, and everybody saw full frontal nudity from Shanko. And Shanko had nothing to be embarrassed about. Um, Shanko made more headlines from that moment than I think he ever did as a player on the field. And rightfully so. I mean, the dude, well endowed. I'll put it that way. So the question is, so that's the background and that's the context. The question is, and I won't, I'm not going to put who wrote the question just to save them, I don't know, the, embarrass, the embarrassment of actually wanting to know maybe. Um, they said, does Shanko, did Shanko flaunt it all the time? And I will say this. Yes, he did. Um, Shanko, strangely enough, Shanko's not the only guy to flaunt it all the time. And I found this so strange with most NFL locker rooms. And I get that guys are confident, egotistical. Um, you got to be, you know, you got to kind of have that bravado, I think, to play the game a little bit. Um, but there's also just a little bit of um, tactness, I think, that needs to happen in locker rooms. And it just doesn't happen in locker rooms sometimes. But there are a lot of guys that just, they don't give a shit. I mean, they will walk from the furthest corner of the locker room, and they ha- they might have the longest walk to the shower. And there's the towels over their shoulder, their towels around their neck. They're just walking around naked. And I, and I get it. Fine. If you want to do that and feel free, but this isn't your house. This isn't your home. Go do that shit at home. Like, I don't want, I don't want to have to, I feel like I'm Adam Gase when he took over the New York Jets with his, with his press conference and where he was going with his eyes. Like, I, I kind of felt like it was a gauntlet, an eye gauntlet walking to the, to the locker, to the shower. It's like, you don't want to look down. Because you got to look at where you're going, but if you look up, you're going to see someone's crank, and you want to, you know, like so you're kind of looking up to the side, like you're kind of having conversations with guys, and you're like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a meat peeker here, but you know, when you got your shit out all the time, it's like kind of hard to ignore. Um, so yeah, man, it wasn't just Shanko. There are a lot of guys uh, that just they didn't care. It's a room full of men, I suppose, is what they're thinking, and like, why would they care? Why would anybody care if I'm naked? But uh, when you've got 60-some guys in a locker room sharing a space and sharing a, a shower, um, I don't know. Just put a towel on. I mean, we all know that you're going to shower naked, and we've got to see you in there. Just, just, just put the freaking towel on. Okay, we're getting down to the last two here. Uh, this is where we're going to kind of veer off the, uh, the football takes. Um, I think this I, – I selected this one because there's been some things that happened on the Power Trip Morning Show and when I've been on the radio here in the Twin Cities publicly. And I, and I don't mind. I'm not certainly trying not to hide behind anything. Um, this person asked – this is Jake from Instagram. So I appreciate you, Jake, on Instagram. He says, do I consider myself a Republican slash conservative? Um, so this is where I, I find this question fascinating because – um, I suppose in a world where we have a two-party system and we have to usually declare – now, I can declare independent, sure. Um, but in a two-party system, we're only given two choices. You're either Democrat or Republican. I'm a Republican. I choose that bubble that says Republican. And But this is where I think is the catch. And I feel like I'm a lot of people. And it sort of pisses me off that everybody wants to label everybody based on their views. 
and they think because I'm a Republican on some things, I'm a Republican with everything. That's not how this shit works. If you're a Democrat, I don't believe that you believe every freaking thing that comes out of a Democrat's mouth. That would be ignorant on your part to do that, to blindly follow some of these political leaders into whatever dark corner that they want to talk into or whatever thing that whatever platform that they're on that they want to they want to push out there. And you're like, OK, yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. I stand behind that. No, I, I feel like I'm like 80 percent of you out there that I want to freely think about each topic and on where I stand. So I, I just want to put this out there and set the record straight. Am I am I a Republican and do I do I circle that bubble when it comes time to do that? Yes, I do. Does that mean that 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 I believe in everything that they're doing? Fuck no. Absolutely not. And do I believe in fiscal responsibility and limited government? Yes. I don't think that our government needs to be in everything that we're doing. And do I want lower taxes? Absolutely I want lower taxes. Do I want our government to use our taxes better? 100%. We, we flippantly and irresponsibly use tax dollar money on these on, on things all over the place. And so those things need to be readjusted. I don't think raising taxes and bringing in more money is the answer. It's being smarter about how we budget our money is the answer. I love fighting for the environment. Does that make me a Democrat? No. That just makes me a human being that cares about the future of our kids. I think that you can be a Republican and still care about the environment. Do I want oil pipelines going through our, our states? Fuck no. Do I think that we need to have more, more infrastructure and more research and development and engineering going into renew, renewable uh, energy sources? Absolutely. That's where we need to get going. We need to get a, go away from coal-powered. We need to go away from pumping carbon dioxide in the air. We need to find ways to sequester carbon out of the air. We need to do things that that help our our environment out and clean our dirty ass shit and our habits up. That's just a, a humanitarian take. That's not a Republican or Democratic take. I believe in pro-choice. It's the woman's body. Let her do what she wants. I, I know that there's limits on all of that as far as when you can, when you can uh, abort babies and all that. But uh, having a government tell us exactly what we, sh- what a woman should be doing with her body. I- I'm sorry. It's, it's what, it's their life that they have to deal with. If, if it's their guilt that they have to do, deal with. It's all of that. If I obviously don't agree with some of the late-term stuff, but my goodness, man, like I'm a Republican that believes in women's rights. Like, you know, a woman should have an ability to control her own body. Um, so there's a lot of different things in different areas to where I, I sway to the left or I st- or stay in the middle or I swing to the right. Um so, you know, these people that come after me when I voice an opinion on the morning show or with Paul Allen, um, you know, shut the hell up. Like, don't put me in a corner. Don't put me put me in a box. Don't put me don't put labels on me. Um, we're, we're all free to believe things from from either side. And that's not that's not wrong to do that. I think that we should do more of that. We should do more of thinking for ourselves and not putting ourselves in certain boxes um, just because it, it's cozy and it satisfies your your perspective of me. All right, off the soapbox. Um, all right, last question, and I'll kind of end it on this one. We are, wow, 30 minutes into this thing. That's a lot of talking for me with, with no breaks. 
Okay. Um, this person asked, uh, this is from Twitter, no trolling time, uh, at no trolling time. So I appreciate this at, at no trolling time. Um, would I rather fight a horse-sized duck? Okay. So picture that in your mind, a horse-sized duck. That's a, that's a big freaking duck. Um, or 100 duck-sized horses. So now picture that as well. We've got 100 tiny little horses that are size of ducks. And if I had to fight one big duck or a hundred small horses, I think that I would probably go with the hundred the hundred horses that are duck sized. I know, yeah, I think I would go I think I would do that because birds to me are unpredictable. There's something about this this lifelessness in their eyes in which they you can't like their mood never really changes like they don't have they can't like furrow their brow or or their eyes don't get big or they don't have any f- expressions on their face so this is an unpredictability about birds that I just don't it's un- unnerving for me so if I had a duck in which I know they're not violent but for this for this situation knowing that we're gonna fight um. I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want to fight even one horse-sized duck. It seems like an easy a fight that I'm, I'm easily going to lose. Um, so I would take my chances on a hundred horses that are much smaller than me. that are a size of ducks. Yeah, they might be able to nip at me and bite me, but there's something about a horse that I think I could shoo away and take care of them. It's going to take longer. But I think I could fight off a hundred of them, and I think I would have more confidence going into that versus these birds and ducks that just seem to to scare me. I was at the San Diego Zoo once when I was playing for the uh, for for Kansas State, and we were there for the Holiday Bowl. And there's a few of us team captains and stuff got, that got special access to go behind the scenes at the San Diego Zoo. And uh, the, one of the coolest things is we got to be up close and personal with the with the cheetah. Uh, the cha- the trainer bought brought out a cheetah on this heavy duty chain rope thing, and it literally sat down right next to me on this little platform. So we were we were almost eye to eye with this cheetah, and uh, it was like licking my hand, and it was super like docile and like domesticated. It was awesome, just awesome, and I had no fear that this thing was just gonna reach over and grab my jugular and spin me around. Like I didn't think that was gonna happen at all. And then they brought over this emu and yes liberty bibbity um they brought over this huge gigantic emu i mean they're they're big birds and and again they had this like little rope around its neck and that without even putting on a platform was basically eye to eye with me i couldn't be next to that thing i i just felt like this thing wanted to peck my eyeballs out I stood there for a hot second to get a picture. I'm like, guys, I can't. I can't do this. Like, that bird scares the shit out of me. I I don't know what it's thinking. Its movements were herky-jerky. It seemed nervous. So, yeah, I don't like birds like that, especially if it was horse-sized. Um, so I'll take I'll take the 100, the 100 horses that are duck-sized. Um, so listen, everybody, that's going to do it for me. I hope you guys enjoyed this, uh, the first version of the AMA. Uh, I'm sure I'll be doing these as we, as we go along. 
Um, I think these are kind of fun to do to, to hear about what you guys are interested in. I hope this was enlightening, at least to some point. Uh, I hope it was entertaining, if anything else. Uh, I do want to thank Douglas and Todd's Small Batch Bourbon. Uh, I think you guys all know and and understand how much I I care about this this Minnesota-based bourbon company uh, that is absolutely phenomenal, and it's going to compete with all the best bourbons out there in the world. I don't give a shit if they're from Kentucky or not. This bourbon is the real deal. Uh, Wexford Harbor Insurance, uh, wexford-harbor.com slash unrestricted. Go there. Uh, my good buddy Pat Kelly and his staff, uh, they're independent insurance dealers. So there's you know 40 or 50 different insurance carriers that that they can look out to find the best value for you and your family. Um, that's the way to go when you're looking for insurance. And then also pickandshovelware.com. They are the um, the very iconic Minnesota-based sports apparel company that everything that they make strikes up a conversation. Super creative. Love everything that they pump out. Uh, they have the promo code LIEBER, L-E-B-E-R, for 20% off your first order. That'll do it, everyone. Thank you very much. And catch me next week as we have another special guest right here on Unrestricted.